So if you've been with us over the last um, couple of months, um, then you'll know that we've been doing a series on meals with Jesus. And in each one of these meals, Jesus has had a specific message to deliver, a point to make to someone. And, and today is absolutely no exception. And when we were looking at this series, um, the book, A Meal with Jesus, was recommended reading. And as ever, needing all the help that I could get, I bought a copy. And when I sat down the other week to read the chapter corresponding to this passage, I thought to myself, I know exactly why Nicola has chosen this passage for me. Or was that just my guilty conscience? Anyway, suffice it to say that I have been challenged and not just intellectually. The chapter starts by talking about our relationship with food. And I would venture to add that it, all, although it doesn't specifically mention this, that it's our relationship in the West to food, as I certainly didn't see any of this in my visit to the Maasai tribe in Kenya recently. Now, I love food. Anyone that has ever eaten out with me will know that I often eat more than my husband and can still manage a chocolate salted caramel truffle at the end of a three-course meal. At the New Wine Conference um, this last week, everyone in church went out for an Indian, really good actually, a really good Indian meal one evening. And I think James was quite surprised to see me wolf down my lamb korma and the best pashwari naan I've ever had in double quick time, literally licking out the bowl. But I also control food. And this is where the chapter challenged me. I follow the 5-2 eat fast routine, and I have done for over 10 years. I detox, as most people know, every February and become a teetotal vegan celiac with no caffeine for a month and probably the most boring person on the planet. And the rest of the time, I only eat food that is WGFF. Worth getting fat for. I know. I sound like a control freak, but please don't judge me because I'm doing that very nicely for myself. Although I was heartened by my daily verse the other day, Romans 14 verse 3. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does for God has accepted them. Now, I'm quite sure that Paul wrote that for a very, very different reason for those early Christians, but I tell you what, it spoke to me. And at the very beginning of the chapter that's on the last um, supper uh, in this particular book, Tim Chester talks about food being part of the fall. It's the eating of forbidden fruit was a rebellion about trying to control things that really should be under God's control rather, let, rather than letting God have that control. Now, how many times do we snatch a quick bite to eat on the hoof using it as fuel rather than a gift for our good? And the crumbs on my laptop are testament to the fact that I do that rather often. We fit food in around our routine, don't we? Around our timetable. We may not even give thanks. I know I don't 
for that quick bite. And again, not so in other cultures where every meal is a more relaxed affair, a true and needed break from work. And Tim Chester makes the point that by treating food in this way as fuel, we strip its identity as a gift. And this enables us to forget the giver. Sometimes we use food for image and identity. Have you ever taken a picture of food in a restaurant or seen somebody that does? Hey, look what I'm eating, look where I'm eating. Slimming programs often um, have a points-based validation where weight loss equals righteousness, whereas weight gain equals condemnation. For some, food is a refuge. We self-medicate trying to live by bread alone and looking for comfort in food rather than comfort in God. In summary, Tim makes the point that neither eating to live nor living to eat is right. And that should give us food for thought. Sorry for the pun. Uh, but I hope I've now got you sort of in the mood for a slightly deeper dive into this passage on the Last Supper. And there's so much uh, in these verses, isn't there, um, that we can't possibly hope to cover it all. But we're going to look back at the history of the Passover meal and its importance in the Jewish tradition still today. We're going to then look at this meal and its importance in our Christian story. The new covenant that this Last Supper promises for our future. The promise of redemption. And then finally, we'll look at its importance in our lives today. So first of all, the history lesson. The Passover was an annual feast first started the night that Israel escaped from slavery in Egypt. God told the Israelites to kill a lamb in their home and daub its blood on the doorposts, then to eat the lamb with unleavened bread. The angel of the Lord would then pass over all the homes that were daubed with blood, thus saving the firstborn of that family, but killing the firstborn of all the other Egyptian homes so that Pharaoh would finally allow the Israelites to go free. Now that Passover meal is still celebrated today in Jewish homes. And it would typically have these components. A lamb bone or shank to represent the sacrificed lamb whose blood was used on the door. Unleavened bread to signify the speedy departure from Egypt. Charoset, which is a sweet brown mixture which represents the brick mortar for all the building um, that the Israelites did in, for structures in, uh, in Egypt. An egg, which was a pre-holiday offering at the temple. Celery or some other green vegetable dipped in salt water, which symbolized the tears of slavery. Bitter herbs, marrow and chazaret to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. And there'd also be four cups of wine drunk during the meal, representing God's four promises to his people. I will bring you out of slavery, I will free you, I will redeem you, and I will take you as my people. Okay, history lesson now over. Let's look at this Passover meal, this Last Supper in the Gospel of Luke. It's interesting to note that this particular meal 
Jesus had planned from the get-go. He is in control of this meal. Some of the other ones, he went to people's houses as he was passing, or he said he'd pop in for lunch. But this one, he's been in control of from the get-go. And there's a bit of a mystery surrounding where it is, and that might possibly be because Jesus knew that his enemies were catching up with him, and he was so wanting to have this meal with his disciples. It was so important that he was in control of this. Now, despite this very well-known painting by Leonardo da Vinci, uh, with Jesus and all the disciples sitting at the table, in our first verse of our reading today, Luke clearly tells us that Jesus and his disciples were reclining. And apparently, unknown fact to me, um, that it's a sign of freedom. Reclining is a sign of freedom from slavery. So slaves would sit at a table and others who were free would recline at the table. Jesus then goes on in the next verse, in verse 15, to, um, to foretell his imminent suffering. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he then talks about the betrayal of one around that table. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Jesus spells it out to his disciples that he knows exactly what is going to happen. So that they and we know that this entire situation is under his control. It's all the Father's will. Judas and the soldiers who arrest Jesus may think that this is all they're doing, but in reality, they are following God's script. Jesus had told his disciples many times before that this was going to happen, even if they didn't choose to hear or understand. But the Last Supper is not only looking back to the time of the Passover in Egypt, it's also looking forward to the messianic banquet that Jesus is going to host in heaven. That great party we heard about a few weeks ago that we're all invited to, provided we're not too busy to show up. Jesus is also looking as well, he's looking forward to the events of the next day and what that will mean for all of us. In verse 19, he says, And he took the bread, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this, I guess, is the crux of the Last Supper. The redemption that Jesus offers us by giving his body for us. Because of his death on the cross, both sin and judgment are dealt with. This is the reason that Jesus came. This is his purpose. As indeed John the Baptist foretold in, I think it's John, um, John chapter 1, when he cried out, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew he understood the reason for Jesus' coming, the sacrificial lamb who came to seek and save the lost. Jesus continues in verse 20. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. They're very familiar words, aren't they? We hear them every week. But what does he mean by the new covenant? Well, the word covenant is an agreement, a promise, a contract, if you like. The old covenant is the agreement that that God had with his people through Moses in Exodus, where God promised to be Israel's God if they promised to be his people. But as we know, they broke that promise. And what Jesus offers us here, through his death, through the spilling of his blood, is a new covenant, a new promise. He's saying, I will die and take on your sins that you may be in a free relationship with God with nothing getting in the way. That is the new covenant that we all live under now. So if this is Jesus' amazing, amazing promise to us, how should we respond as we reflect on that today? Christians through the ages, starting with those disciples, would break bread and drink wine together, being obedient to Jesus' command. Today, Christians across the world will continue in that obedience as we take communion together as an act of remembrance. And we don't do this for Jesus, but we do it to remember what he did for us. It's a very personal message. Jesus says, this is my body given for you, for his disciples, for you, for me. As we take communion, we're reminded of the cross, that our sins are forgiven, our debt has been paid, we are free. And as I was praying about this today, the word that kept coming back to me was grateful, Be grateful for this. We've got so much to be grateful for. But the Last Supper, as I said before, is not only a looking back, but it's a looking forward to that great feast in heaven. And so too is our communion celebration. Not only a looking back in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, but also a looking forward, a foretaste of what is to come. And Tim Chester says it should be approached as such with anticipation and excitement and joy. And I would say in gratitude and not as a solemn ritual. Which is quite interesting because I wonder sometimes if we treat it as a solemn ritual rather, as, rather than, than a, a, an invitation to tomorrow's feast in heaven. Tim goes on to say that communion is also an act of community and dependence. Community, because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we all partake of the one bread. Across the globe, Christians today will be taking communion. It unites us all into the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ created by that cross. And we take bread and wine together with each other not alone at home in the main part, because it builds us together as community. It was 
difficult, wasn't it, during the pandemic when we couldn't do that? It's also interesting to note that Jesus doesn't say think this or say this. He says do this. In acting it out together, we participate as community. And those of you who are teachers among you will know that you can learn so much by seeing and so much by hearing, but actually the act of doing something helps to cement that learning in place. Secondly, dependence. Communion reminds us of our dependence on God, our dependence on Jesus for our salvation. We need to rely on him for that salvation as much as we rely on our daily bread to live. We simply cannot save ourselves. So in summary, the the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper tells us the gospel story. Jesus loves us. Jesus died for us. Jesus sacrificed himself in our place for our sins. As a result, we are forgiven, we are accepted, we are loved, and we are free. There is no further price to pay. God's will was done. This was the purpose of it all, the very reason that Jesus came to earth as man. So let's put our trust in that today and approach communion with joy in our hearts, looking forward to that glorious feast, hopeful for his return and thankful for all that he's done for us.